This has truly been a manic Monday on Wall Street. The decision by Lehman Brothers to file for bankruptcy late last night sent shockwaves around the globe. What started in America last year has now spread to every part of the world. Petrodacks over in Frankfurt is down by 9%. The Paris market down by 9%. Former head of the US Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, called it a once-in-a-century event. Do we economists know anything? Because if you don't know enough to capture the most extraordinary event economic event in all of our lifetimes. What in the world do we really know? It's like a mystery story to me. You know, how in the world did I miss it? Autumn 2008, and the world watches the biggest financial meltdown in history. The crash plunged the world into recession, lost millions of families their homes, and its shadow still hangs over our politics today. And when the Queen goes to the London School of Economics that autumn, she asks a question everyone wants the answer to. Why did no one see it coming? Well, you're about to meet four economists who can claim they did. They warned financial crisis was imminent. They wrote books and papers. They even told the powerful to their faces. And they got nowhere. Call them our four Cassandras, cursed, as Greek myth has it, to utter prophecies that were true but never believed. In this programme, you'll hear what they predicted. The bursting of America's housing bubble, a historic debt crisis, and the financial system that had grown so complex, it would end up in one simple thing. A mess. We'll find out how being outsiders helped them to see it coming when no one else did, but also led to ridicule from the economists and politicians. And we'll be future-gazing and asking our four Cassandras at a crash to predict what happens next from a sovereign debt crisis in America to a financial crisis in China. With me in the studio here in London is Anne Pettifor, Director of Prime Policy Research in Macroeconomics, and Steve Keane, who's Professor of Economics at Kingston University in London. Joining us from Connecticut is Peter Schiff, American stockbroker and investor, and from the University of Chicago is Raghuram Rajan, who's Professor of Finance at the Booth School of Business there. Let's start with a quick question to all of you. You're all on here because you called it. But when you did, what was the worst thing anyone called you? Peter Schiff. Well, they just thought I was crazy because I said housing prices were going to collapse. We were going to go into this massive recession. We were going to have this financial crisis. And people thought I was completely nuts. Everybody thought it was Goldilocks. The economy was great. They were almost as optimistic as they are now about Donald Trump. You were a laughingstock. Yeah, but, you know, but at least they had me on to laugh at me. I had a lot of fun going on all the shows because <laughs> I knew I was right. It was only a question of time. Steve. Okay, mine was one mainstream economist was asked in an interview, uh, what did he think about my predictions of a recession? He said, well, Keen is in a minority of one. And the thing, if I find any consistency either side of the bubble is how I've been treated. I was ridiculed for calling it before it happened and ridiculed by saying that I called it after it happened. <laughs> Ridicule was the only consistent theme. Raghuram. I had worried a little bit about the financial engineering that was going on. And uh, I guess people thought I wanted to go back to the Stone Age. So one of the insults, of course, was I was called a Luddite. By the former US Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers, is that right? Yes. Uh, I, I think he was trying to make a larger point, and we had a discussion after that. But yes, it was him. 
Anne, I think you were blogging for The Guardian. That's right. Time, and you yeah. got a bit of a roasting from readers of your blog. Yeah, so I, I, had, I used to get roastings from, I think they were city boys, basically. <laughs> and, and I used to be called Chicken Licken, you know, the sky is falling. All right, so <laughs> if you're all people who got it right in various ways, what's been the consequence of so many people getting it wrong? Well, I think it's been pretty disastrous because, I mean, the fact is that we weren't prepared for it, the central bankers weren't prepared for it, the treasury officials weren't prepared for it, and a lot of people were very badly hurt. Millions lost their jobs, millions lost their homes, and businesses and firms went bust. I mean, it was really quite catastrophic for, for two or three years, and the recovery since has been very, very weak, and incomes, for example, in Britain are still below what they were then. So the losses have been immense as a result of of not predicting and not getting it right. OK, so if they'd only just listened to all of you, they could have avoided all of this mess. But mm. since you're not just economists but actual human beings, why don't you tell us a bit about yourselves? I really want to know how a maverick's made. Raghuram, you're from India. Tell, tell us a bit about what, what it is in your background that you think makes you a bit of a maverick. Well, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure I like the word maverick. <laughs> Uh, Maverick. But uh, <laughs> I, I've been on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. I, I've been in the IMF and I've also been a central banker and therefore heard from everybody who says the world is coming to an end, better do something. And uh, the reality is, you know, it is very difficult to tell the signal from the noise. It's also, uh, and we just heard, sometimes it's a little late when you're in 2007 or 2008 and somebody tells you uh, we are in the midst of a housing bubble, do something, it's harder to think of what to do at that point because all the macro prudential tools that you should have used should have been used a few years ago. So we should be careful that while uh, we can make predictions and many people make predictions, trying to act on those is also quite difficult. But Raghu, you're an Indian-born chief economist of this huge institution and you're not a classically trained economist. You're more of a mathematician than an economist. Does that not make you stand out a bit from the rest? Well, well, actually, um, yes, it does make me stand out because you first have to show that you can play their game, mm. uh, that you can speak macroeconomics I used to spend my first few months in the IMF saying I don't know macroeconomics, I'm not a macroeconomist, and my staff shushed me and said, you're not allowed to say that, you're now the world's sort of top macroeconomist because you run the research department at the IMF. And so I had to shut up, uh, but I also learned that basically try and focus on your strengths, and my strengths were finance. Uh, I could talk macroeconomics, and I, in fact, I, I learned it on the job. But uh, you also brought to the table things that they weren't looking at. And uh, I think this is where you're coming at that as an outsider, you see some things. The financial sector was something that institutions like the IMF didn't pay as much attention to. In their wisdom, they brought me in to give them more of a sense of what it was about, which is where I could start looking at it and start talking about it within the uh, within the organisation. Peter, do you see anything in your personal makeup that you that makes you a bit of an outsider? Well, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't learn economics in uh, in school. I mean, I took some econ courses, but I was smart enough to know it was a bunch of nonsense. 
I mean, I learned a lot of economics from my father, who's, you know, a self-taught Austrian economist who gave good advice that was ignored. And, you know, I gave a lot of good advice that was ignored as well. And your dad also was a tax protester. Well, yeah, he protested the illegal collection of income taxes, uh, the way the government was enforcing it. And yeah, he paid a heavy price for that. My father died a political prisoner about three years ago. He spent almost a little over 10 years in jail. So wh- where does that, how does that inform your attitude towards authority then, Peter? Well, I mean, I still have respect for authority, but although I, I don't pay my tax, I don't pay taxes either now because I moved to Puerto Rico. Uh, but, you know, what I'm able to do is I'm able to make a lot of money over time off of the collective stupidity of pretty much the consensus because I can see things that they can't. And so, you know, I'm, I'm able to make money off these forecasts. You just got to be patient and wait for these things to, to work out. And how would you say you came to become a maverick? What are the key bits in your biography? Well, I, I was born in South Africa. I grew up in very humble circumstances in the Orange Free State in South Africa, sort of the great outback of South Africa. And I left Africa because of apartheid. Uh, And I suppose I was a bit of a maverick then because all my family and the people around me thought there was nothing wrong with apartheid. Including your family? Yeah, they all thought I was a bit of a... Well, they thought I was a lefty, radical, oddball. So you were a dissenter against apartheid? Yeah, and I was going to be a troublemaker. And and I was really worried that actually I would also get my family into difficulties because, of course, the South African secret police were a very powerful force and so on. But also I didn't want to end up on Robben Island, I'm afraid. Um, So I left the country after being a student rebel and getting into trouble at university. And then, of course, in, in maturity, I worked on the sovereign debts of African countries, you know, harking back to my background. And it was then that I saw what was coming. Steve, I've that's got, one got, dominion. Got, You're from another dominion, aren't you? I'm from Australia, from Sydney, and uh, I come from a Catholic family. I'm an agnostic and an atheist when pressed, but that's the background, which gives you a strong sense of social justice. And uh, one of my teachers used to say, you either become a total believer or, an, or a communist <laughs> if you have to a Catholic education. I began at one and didn't, I didn't, didn't end up at the other. But that made me have a very strong sense of social justice, mm. but also logic. And the pivotal point for me was realising that mainstream economics was just hit through with logical flaws. And the first one I learnt was what's called the theory of the second best, uh, which argues that if you're two steps from nirvana, according to economic theory, moving one step closer to nirvana will make society worse. And I thought, holy hell, if that theory is that fragile, there's got to be something seriously wrong at the base. And my sense of justice and logic drove me to become a critic of mainstream economics. And that's where this all led to. OK, fast forward to the early 2000s and the biggest financial boom in human history. We're told things can only get better, and they certainly are for house prices. Yeah. Cheap credits flowing on every high street. And over in the corner, you lot, the party poopers with your warnings of doom. <laughs> can each of you sum up what you were worrying about? And pitiful. So I had worked on the sovereign debt of the poorest countries in the 1980s and 90s, and it quickly became clear to me that the debts owed by the Anglo-American economies were far bigger than those owed by 35 of the poorest countries. And that the debt wasn't sustainable because it wouldn't be paid down, it would also not be written off largely, and it would be dealt with through default. And I believe very strongly that the management of the rate of interest and of credit creation are really, really important. And I noticed that, of course, the authorities were not caring and and were not involved and not engaged in managing credit creation and also did not think that the rate of interest was important. And so, of course, as soon as uh, Greenspan put, started putting up interest rates in 2003, 
up to 2006. For me, it was a way of ratcheting up uh, and, and sharpening, if you like, a dagger, which was pointed at a vast bubble of debt. And in my view, it was that, that was a, it was high rates that was going to puncture that debt. But at this point, most economists are saying that crises are borrowing too much are things that really only happen in poor countries like Mexico. Yeah. And you're saying that it's about to hit somewhere as rich as America. And all it's really going to take is for the interest in all this debt to get more expensive. Sure. Peter Schiff, you started warning things were going wrong back in 2002. Tell us where you were and what you thought would go wrong. Yeah, so the problem wasn't that the Fed raised rates. The problem was that they lowered them in the first place. They, the they, lowered, them in, they lowered them in reaction to a crisis, which was the dot-com bubble bursting. Mm. Right, which but but they caused that crisis by 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 excess money being created during you know the entire bubble. So it, it, they should have allowed the bubble to pop and allow the market to correct for all the imbalances that were built up. But Alan Greenspan made a big mistake and slashed interest rates to one percent, and the result of that was the housing bubble. And I started warning about that early that the housing bubble was going to be much worse when it popped because the losses were going to be among the lenders, the banks. I predicted the bankruptcy of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I mean, we shorted the subprime market. So you're making all these dire predictions about house prices. Did you actually stick your money where your mouth was? Well, I was renting. I was renting houses the entire time and, and people didn't were buy. laughing at me. No, I In rented. the middle of the massive real estate bubble, you didn't buy it. Yes. And then I eventually bought a house uh, for about half of what the person who sold it to me paid 10 years earlier. Raghuram, your famous moment is going to a meeting of central bankers and policymakers at Jackson Hole, where they meet once a year. And this was meant to be some kind of great jamboree for Alan Greenspan, who Peter just mentioned, the head of the US Central Bank. Tell us what you did and what happened. Well, it was uh, Alan Greenspan's last Jackson Hole conference, and uh, we were all there to celebrate his many years at the helm. And uh, we were all competing uh, to say how great a central banker he had been. Now, I had agreed to write a paper on the financial sector and what transformations had happened during that time. And I started writing that paper thinking I'd talk about all the wonderful things that had happened, the financial innovation, etc. But as I started writing it, I, you know, started wondering, where has all the risk gone? We had fairly risky banks. Uh, they've failed a number of times uh, in the 80s and the 90s. And suddenly they seem to be the safest creatures in the world in the 2000s. And uh, when you looked at credit default swaps and so on, uh, there was something amiss. And as you started thinking about it, what you realized is that the system was being held up by people were betting on the fact that any kind of downturn would be very, very low probability. And they were making money on the basis of writing guarantees against those kinds of things. And as a result, so long as that bad event didn't happen, people looked very profitable. And there were a lot of financial firms that were making a ton of money. But if, in fact, that possible event occurred, you would have a massive wreckage in the financial system. So uh, the title of the talk was entitled, Has Financial Development Made the World Riskier? And basically arguing that uh, the financial system was taking a lot of risk, which was not visible. It was the lower part of the iceberg. What was visible was uh, looked very profitable, but underlying it, they were actually taking significant risks, which were not coming to the fore. 
Did you know your paper would go down like a lead balloon? Well, you know, as I was leaving uh, home, I, I, I told my wife, look, I'm going to be the guy who reigns on Greenspan's parade. And, you know, either this talk will make me or I'll look like a fool forevermore. <laughs> Raghu, I, I'm really puzzled by this. You've got a very good job at the IMF. You know that you, you, you're saying that you know that you've, there's a possibility that you could give this paper and people will think you're a fool. Why not just do what everyone else does and just play the game? Oh, well, you know, I, let, let me not pretend to be a hero here. The virtue of having a sort of side job in academia, which actually is my permanent job uh, since I'm tenured here at Chicago, is that they want you to, to think new thoughts. Uh, and it is true that the bulk of academia wants to write really solid papers, which uh, rarely have a chance of going wrong. But there is also value in academia to stretching on a limb and saying, hey, I think this is what's going on. Here's the best I can do to prove it. But, you know, I may be wrong. And so uh, you should think of me there not as a card-carrying member of the international bureaucracy, uh, but really as an academic. And, and that helped. Steve, your, your big moment. You were on the other side of the world from Anne, from Raghu, mm. from Peter. You're in Australia. What's the point at which things start to turn and you start to think, hang, there's something really rotten here? The aha moment for me came when I was writing an expert witness case on predatory lending by an Australian solicitor, as it happens, where they'd sent a, a poor contract worker bankrupt. And um, I wrote a line in that saying that the debt-to-GDP ratio has been rising exponentially. I knew that as an expert witness in a court case, I couldn't rely upon hyperbole. So I had to check up and see what it would be. And I thought it wouldn't be exponential. And I then plotted the Australian and the American data. And I looked at it and I thought, holy hell, that's almost a pure exponential function. When was this? Uh, it was about December 18, 2005. And how did you feel when you had that? Year I literally, I was actually, it was about two o'clock in the morning when I finally got the maths done. You know, so I can remember the desk I was at in a hotel room in Perth when I saw it. And I thought... This is, there's certainly going to be a crisis in Australia in the rate of growth, the debt goes down. Is this local or is it global? The only way to find it was to grab the data from America, which Federal Reserve data combined with the Bureau of Economic Analysis data. And I put the same stuff together over the next hour. So three o'clock in the morning, I looked at it and thought, well, it's not quite as badly exponential in America as Australia, but the level of debt has risen from about 50% of GDP in 1945, virtually straight up to this stage, 150% of GDP. That has to stop. The biggest economy in the world is going to have a crisis as well. This is global. Somebody has to warn about it, at least in Australia, I'm the someone. And wow. one of the things that emerges from what Steve's saying is there's obviously a lot of tension between what you think and what Peter thinks. Yeah. And you come at this with very different politics. Peter, yeah. I'm guessing, is a right winger. You're on the left. Yeah. Um, but if I listen to what all of you say, and there are common themes, you're, you're all interested in credit creation. Yeah. Yep. And at least two of you, maybe more, are interested in particularly in what the finance sector is doing as part of that. Raghu and, and Steve and, and, and you as well, I think. Mm. And you're very interested in, in, in finance. Now, I remember 2005, 6, 7 as an economics journalist. What economists were worrying about then, if they were worrying at all, wasn't stuff like that. They were talking about America importing too much, about what about George Bush spending too much money and borrowing too much. That was one of the common the so-called twin deficits as it was mm. as it was commonly called back then. Mm. And then at the same time, I also remember people saying the state of macro is good. 
Yeah. People oh, saying, yes. actually, we've found the way to, to beat recessions and beat depressions. So yeah. you have this odd thing where economists are either <clears throat> saying things are fine. Yes. Or they're saying if things go wrong, it's going to be with the government. It's going to be with America. Now, yeah. how do you account for the fact that you're all looking in a very different place in the rest of the profession? What accounts for that? Well, the thing is that I was looking at the sovereign debt of the poorest countries and there was very little literature on it. So for me, the problem was that here I was looking to academia and to the economics profession for some understanding of the nature of money, the nature of interest, of debt, and, and of sovereign debt and the resolution of sovereign debt and crisis. And you're not finding it. And not finding it. For me, the issue is that the economics profession was ignoring money, credit and the banking system and saying it was not relevant to the real economy. And as you say, Aditya, they were concerned with the tangible parts of the economy, exports, imports. The bits they could see in their models. The bits they could see. You can't see an awful lot of what's happening in the global financial system. And that, I don't think, is an accident. And that, you know, that I think is deliberate. Uh, And that meant that the economics profession had a complete blind spot for a vast area. And I believe that the finance sector, Wall Street and the City of London, London delighted in that general neglect of the subject. Raghu, come in. Well, just to connect your points with Anne's, I, I think uh, both of you are right. Uh, you were saying the we were more focused on the U.S. current account deficit, and Anne says we were ignoring uh, the the details of finance. And I think both are right in the sense that we thought the plumbing, that is the financial sector pipes worked in industrial countries. They didn't work in the emerging markets. That's why we had emerging market crises. But they had wor- they worked. We had strong regulation. We had uh, people with the right incentives in the financial firms. So we didn't have to worry about that. That's why we worried about the big picture, macroeconomics, current account deficits, the U.S. spending too much, not realizing that that itself was weakening the plumbing. And in fact, the plumbing couldn't really take it, that incentives were going haywire with all this money that was being recirculated through the U.S. system. Remember Ben Bernanke, the chairman after Greenspan, gave a speech in 2004 talking about the global savings glut, the enormous amounts of money that was coming into the U.S., and distorting prices, distorting the financial system. This is all the savings from China and places like that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. He didn't take the next step to say, well, this could actually create a problem for us. And that was because we all took it for granted. The system would work. The plumbing wouldn't back up. It was fine. Raghu, you were saying there was so much money flooding through the plumbing of our financial system, as you call it, that the bankers couldn't do their job of directing what was most needed in businesses or factories or whatever, and instead were just pushing it into asset bubbles like housing and fine art. Peter Schiff. Well, the problem was we were creating money out of thin air and relying on the savings from the rest of the world, but this was a gigantic bubble. The mortgage meltdown means thousands of families are losing their homes. Millions more are at risk of foreclosure. We've still got a huge amount to do to reduce the deficit and to get our debts falling. Just to help the government will take some notice of our protests for the livelihoods of lots of people in this country that are going to lose their jobs. What feels like severing of a whole group of people in England, well, in Great Britain, that by and large are the less fortunate. I'm Aditya Chakraborty and you're listening to Cassandra's of the Crash. 
the tale of four economists who predicted the 2008 financial crisis, the one we were told no one could see coming. Peter Schiff, Anne Pettifor, Raghuram Rajan and Steve Keen. For years they were warning of the inherent weakness of an economy based on easy credit, financial wizardry and a belief that the good times would simply keep on rolling. The powers that be ignored them, but what happened when the House of Cards came crashing down? Did those panicking politicians do the right thing? There was a famous comment from uh, an American banker along the lines of, as long as the music's playing, you've got to be up and dancing. Mm. And let's talk about when the music finally stopped. Mm. August 9th, 2007. What happened then and where were you? On that day, I was in a little village in Suffolk and um, I heard the news of interbank lending freezing and of the ECB jumping in. Can point... you explain to Leighton, mm. what does that mean? What's... Well, that, what it meant was, and then this is what's really important to what I think is going to be the next crisis, which is that it was not that the banks ran out of money. They ran out of trust and confidence in the valuation of the assets held by their peers. And so, so for example, you know, what had happened was that in the U.S., uh, subprimers had begun to default and therefore house prices has fell. The more they defaulted, the more house prices fell. But people had leveraged the debt against the asset, which was that house. So as the price of that asset fell, so the debt that had been leveraged rose relatively. And suddenly people began to panic about what the real value of the assets were on the balance sheets of their fellow bankers. And they no longer believed it. It's, it happened very suddenly. And that was and, the Bank of National, BNP, Bank National of Paris, uh, yes, yeah. which and, shut down and, three of its funds that particular day. Mervyn King was watching cricket on that day, and the, the Bank of England was a bit slow to join in. But Ben Bernanke was on the ball and also jumped in very quickly on that day. But it was. So was you, it, you knew on that day yeah, that, yeah. that things had changed. That, that this was. How the, did you feel? Oh, I was terrified. Um, and I but have to say... vindicated as well. This is the, another thing I, for all of I, us, I No, think. I was really frightened because yeah. it seemed to me to be incredibly severe. But I remember my husband getting very irritated with me, saying, look, this is Saturday and it's a sunny day on holiday. And you've just been down on everything again. But the thing that really worried me was that between then and layman's, the public really didn't grasp what was going on. The public was kind of mollified. And I think the public thought that that the central bank had fixed it all. And it wasn't until a year and a bit later that they understood the crisis as having broken. Peter, you're bursting to come in. Yeah, the, the big point about 2007 was how clueless uh, everybody was, including Ben Bernanke. Who, who had just taken over as head of the US Federal Reserve. Yeah, but bank. he assured people that there was nothing to worry about, that everything was contained to subprime. And I was assuring everybody on television almost on the same day that he didn't know what he was talking about, uh, that it wasn't a subprime problem. It was the entire mortgage market that was, that was infected, that it was going to be a major credit crunch and a financial crisis. But the reason that guys like Greenspan didn't, un didn't recognize this, even after it had already blown up, is because they didn't understand the problem. They had no idea that they were the culprits. They lit the fire. They weren't the firemen to put it out. And so they had no understanding of the problems they created. And even when the warning signs were so obvious, they still couldn't notice them. Steve, in 2007, was there ever a point in which you started telling your friends, look, stuff's about to happen, bad stuff's about to go down. I'd forgotten that I'd told one of my best friends to get her money in the superannuation scheme out of shares and put them into bonds. I apparently rang her up and just harassed her. Back in 2006, 2007, I was saying, get your money out of anything exposed to the share market or the real estate market. 
And she told me that when her friends at the school she worked at were talking about the crunch when it actually hit in a huge drop in the share market occurring in 2008, they all lost like 40% of Off their, their pensions. 40% of their pensions disappeared. And she said, oh, I'm fine. I gained a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, R- Raghuram, th- there was a bit when it really hit home in Britain. I, I don't think people necessarily registered the, the closure of the, the BNP uh, money market funds. But the point when it really hit home in Britain was in September 2007, when the streets of Britain started to look like downtown Buenos Aires. And people were queuing up outside Northern Rock Bank to get their savings out. What were you thinking at that time? Uh, Well, I I think the images of people queuing up like they queued up in the emerging markets or uh, during the Depression was certainly a wake-up call. But I agree with Anne that uh, if you looked around the industry, there was still a sense that, uh, certainly in the United States, that uh, this was still manageable. I I remember going to a conference of risk managers, and uh, we spent a long time asking if people were worried. This was a conference between academics and risk managers. And it turned out that nobody confessed to being worried. And then in the break, one of the risk managers, who was a very sensible guy, took me aside and said, who do you think is in this room? Anybody who was worried was kicked out long ago. (laughs) Uh, They no longer have their jobs. Mm. And that brought it home to me that, that, in fact, the confidence that central bankers had that the private sector would take care of itself, that they, are, they had the right incentives, was really off. Peter, in September 2008, you get to the point in which Lehman Brothers actually files for bankruptcy and the government lets that happen. Were you surprised at that? Do you think the government made the wrong call on that case? No, that's probably the only thing they got right. Uh, they should have let a lot more uh, banks fail. Instead, they they made the mistake of propping them up. I guess that was like a trial balloon and the market didn't react favorably to that decision. So they bailed out Bear Stearns and then they bailed out other firms uh, and they had all these mergers. You know, all those banks that were too big to fail, all these big banks are going to fail again. And they're much bigger now. We should have let them fail. I I think Peter is proposing something which a bunch of people think let everything collapse and things will be better. Now, We haven't seen anybody actually do that, and we don't know if, in fact, the financial system will recover in finite time. This is a belief. It may well be right, but it could be very wrong also. Was there anyone here who was surprised at at the reaction of the the various governments in 2008? Anne? Yes, I was. I mean, I I thought it was crazy myself. I thought it was a big mistake. I I believed it had to be bailed out because the system had to be rescued, because we all depend on the monetary system. It's like the sanitation no, system. No, the, the system was the problem. And, and, and so I agree, I agree that the system was the problem, but I didn't think that was right. The, the, there, there is a thing, and Steve got it a bit early, is that the four of you had been like guys with sandwich boards saying the end of the world is nigh. Mm-hmm. And now in September 2008, everyone says, I think you're right, and the end of the world is now. How do you how do you feel? Do you feel justified or do you feel terrified, Steve? Initially, both terrified and justified. Uh, when you see the scale of a crash that's going to come, and you can see people running head straight towards the brick wall, not knowing that it's there, it's a very scary experience. I certainly didn't see the extent to which the financial system would collapse. The extent of panic. I mean, thinking about banks like Citibank and Bank of America going into effectively government receivership, 
I mean, that's something that nobody really thought they would see. Uh, maybe Peter did, but I think it was frightening. And uh, the sense that uh, we could wake up without some of these institutions and we'd have the Great Depression all over again, uh, that was very worrisome. So I, I think fear and to some extent sadness that we'd got there uh, was more dominating than any sense that you were right. OK, but Peter, there, there you are saying that what the government's doing is totally wrong. Are any politicians then getting in touch with you? Are there any of the Republican Party <laughs> starting to say, well, come in and let's have a chat? No, I mean, look, politicians generally only care about getting reelected and, you know, they don't have a stomach for, you know, swallowing any bitter tasting medicine that might in the long run deliver a gain. I mean, they just want to kick the can down the road and get past the next election. That is the problem. And they're, they're concerned about their own uh, political futures and their own reelection. Uh, they don't really care about the country. And that's probably true, you know, all over the world. It's not just in America. Raghu, we went from George Bush to Barack Obama in, in the autumn of 2008. Are there things that you think the politicians got wrong? They really didn't explain the rescues. They should have explained why the system needed rescuing, why taxpayer money was being put into these large banks, and why they didn't do the same thing for Main Street, right? That would have created a little more sympathy uh, for what happened and not have people see it as an elite papering over that the boys in Washington had gotten together with the boys in New York and had done things really in the back room without any public oversight. And we had our own, famously our own bailout in, in Britain in yeah. October 2008, which was dreamt up over cold curry and some very long nights in the Treasury. But one of the things that marks out that period, in, in my memory at least, is there was very little done to change the, the, the way the banks were actually run. Yeah. So they were allowed to run to pretty much the same programme as before. There was no attempt to direct them. We took over some of the biggest banks in the country, mm. but we didn't change anything about no. them. And I think this is, I mean, I, I really don't think there's any point in blaming politicians. Politicians are... You know, they are what they are. But the fact of the matter is that the profession, mm. the experts, the people who should understand the system were the ones that did not. Un when the Queen goes to the London School of Economics, they cannot explain why they could not see this coming. And I think Raghu is right to say politicians didn't explain. But that's because the professionals hadn't given them the intellectual equipment, if you like. And I think the problem isn't politicians are bad and the rest of us are OK. The, the problem is that the economists who were supposed to understand in the way that, for example, geologists understand tsunamis rocks. and rocks and, right. and, and tectonic plates, economists do not understand the tectonic plates of the economic system. And, and when they shift, they didn't understand that. But the ignorance, and it was public ignorance, it was intellectual ignorance, it was political ignorance, was vast. And I blame the profession for that. And as a result... We haven't changed the system. We haven't restructured the system. We haven't rebalanced the system. There was a moment, I remember, when the banks were, the bankers were, if you like, a penitent, and when they were ready to have terms and conditions determined mm. uh, and, and for them to change. But they noticed the politicians didn't, didn't set any terms and conditions. Alistair Darling bailed out the RBS to the tune of £45 billion, the biggest corporate bailout in history, 
but never set any real terms and conditions. Thou shalt, in exchange for taxpayer funds, thou shalt play your proper role in the economy. And because people were fearful of the term nationalisation and so on. So we have not had the structural change that was necessary to stabilise the system long term. And mm. that, for me, is regrettable. Yeah, well, you know, that the, the structural change that we needed, though, is not more government micromanagement of the economy and trying to make deals with private businesses and direct capital. What we needed is to learn our lesson that the government interference in the free market is what caused the problem. And what I we needed to do was get government out. Simplistic. That's far too it's simplistic. It's not simplistic at all. It that's is. exactly it what is. happened. Peter, let me ask you a historical point. There, there was a point in which Obama called together the guys from Wall Street, called them all into his office and said, look, I'm all that stands between you and the pitchforks. Do you think they should have let the pitchforks go on the guys in Wall Street? Do you think that the politicians should have said, actually, these guys have screwed your economy and you're going to be poor as a result of what the bankers did? Do you think there should have been not just an, a culpability in terms of letting the institutions fall? Do you think there should have been a personal culpability? Well, first of all, the reason that Wall Street was drunk, and that was George Bush's term, is because the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan, liquored everybody up. So was Wall Street dumb enough to drink all the Fed's alcohol? Yes. And they should have paid the price for their own stupidity. But the problem was not the banks, the private banks. It was the Federal Reserve. That was the problem. It was also Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the FHA. It was government entities that were the primary culprits. And, of course, they, didn't, they weren't punished at all. I mean, the Federal Reserve has more power now than it ever did, and they're doing more damage now than they did in the past. And now Fannie and Freddie are still there. They're operated completely by the U.S. government, and they're bigger than ever. And yeah. let me just ask uh, Steve very quickly a question. Peter was a minority voice. There was a, a small minority of people who said, let the banks hang, yeah. let them go. There was also on the left, there was a, a, a small minority of people who said, actually, let's nationalise the entire thing and run it in the public interest. And the guy who's now our shadow chancellor in Britain, John McDonnell, was one of those who mm. said that should happen. It never got very far. There was always a belief mm. that we should bail out the banks, but let them run according to market principles. Mm. Do you think in hindsight that the decision Gordon Brown made looks like a mistake? Oh, yes, for the same reasons Anne was giving a while ago, that, that they were giving advice by people who didn't understand the economy, who they were professional economists. And if we had if we had nationalised the banks? I would have nationalised... Basically, you're going to receivership. I mean, there's, there's barely a bank in America that wasn't bankrupt at the time of the crisis. When you want to get them in receivership, the only organisation big enough to take on the entire banking sector and to, and to preserve deposits is the government. You put them in receivership, you wipe out the bondholders, you wipe out the shareholders, you then reprivatise a large number, but not all of those banks. That's what I would have done. You're listening to Cassandra's of the Crash with me, Aditya Chakraborty. We've convened economists who saw the financial crash coming, Raghuram Rajan, Anne Pettifor, Peter Schiff and Steve Keane, to mark the 10th anniversary of the 2008 collapse of Lehman Brothers. We've heard how they predicted the turmoil that would result from easy credit for businesses and households and chicanery by the banks. Politicians ignored them during the good times and they made plenty of blunders afterwards. Even as they were handing out taxpayer billions to the banks, ministers around the world promised this would never happen again, that they'd fix what had gone wrong. Raghuram Rajan, one of Obama's men, began with a clarion call that you should never let a good crisis go to waste. Do you think we lived up to that? Well, we've done some things. I, I, I do think that we have better regulation for the banks, but as Anne said, we've let the shadow financial system remain unregulated and risk migrates. Risk uh, and risk appetites have migrated to the shadow financial system. But I think there's a broader 
problem that that to some extent the extent of leveraging uh, in both uh, the US and Europe was uh, a reaction to uh, problems of weak growth for certain sections of society, uh, of weak incomes. And we haven't dealt with that yet. I mean, that's a much bigger issue. It's driving the populist waves that we see in these countries. And uh, this time over, I think Peter is absolutely right. We can't paper it over with debt yet again uh, without creating yet another problem. And, and so we really have to tackle that. And I don't see governments really tackling that bit. And by leveraging, what you mean is the phenomenon that we saw before the crash of banks borrowing maybe 30, even 40 times the amount of their assets. Yes. Peter Schiff, just coming back on what Raghu says, this idea that we use debt to mask the fact that actually people aren't earning enough to cover their living standards. Have we changed that, do you think? Oh, not at all. I mean, we're relying more on debt than ever before. I mean, look at the United States. I mean, the national debt, just the funded part portion, which is the tip of the iceberg, is now over $21 trillion. Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, nobody is saving anything. Uh, so, no, I mean, we're trying to just continue to perpetuate this consumption-based bubble economy, and we're going to do that until the whole thing implodes. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I think the day of reckoning is coming a lot sooner than a lot of people would think. Steve, one of the groups that came in for a lot of flack in 2008 were economists. Mm. And there was a lot of calls for to, to reform the economics tr- profession. Has that happened? No. The neoclassical orthodoxy actually has come stronger. And rather than people looking at people like me and saying that's that weird guy down the corridor who does strange mathematics and doesn't understand equilibrium thinking, uh, they're actually now gunning for us. But this is this is odd to me because I, I imagine that people like you who've got a claim to have called it would be treated like... I know, like the kind of investor who made the right bet. I'm treated like Copernicus, uh, who told them that the uh, the Earth is not the centre of the universe and it's time they chucked me in house arrest and possibly tortured me. So what does that actually mean for you? In, in real terms, what, what's that meant for you? Oh, I'm, I've been very lucky. I've got a, I've, I've been, had a rising career within declining universities. <laughs> um, and, and ultimately, my career has been unstable in the academic world, so I've gone into crowdfunding to support my work. Yeah. Let me back up. Yeah. You're one of the few academic economists who can claim to have called part of the crisis, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And you're saying that now you're having to fund yourself by crowdfunding, not at base at any major university, but, but actually going on the internet to ask for people yeah. to chip in yeah. money. Yeah. And but university economics has become even more rigid and uh, and opposing non-orthodox thinkers and trying to drive us out. Raghu, you're another uh, academic economist coming. Well, I, I want to differ a little bit. I can see a lot of conferences in academia now uh, focused on the crisis, trying to understand what happened. I see macroeconomists increasingly embedding the financial sector in their models. Minsky is the rage in a number of uh, academic conferences. Uh, I'm sure this varies across places uh, and uh, different people have different experiences. So I don't want to say that this is uniform, but certainly academia is paying attention. Peter, do you feel fashionable now? <laughs> Not at all. In fact, you know, before the 2008 financial crisis, as I said, I was on television every week uh, talking about my views while I was being mocked and laughed at, but at least they invited me on. And 
in the last uh, four or five years, I'm rarely on television in the United States. Very few reporters bother to call me. Uh, so my views have been relegated, uh, you know, further uh, into the fringe than they were before, even though you would think I would have more credibility having been right about the last crisis. I basically have no credibility whatsoever. But the people that were wrong, the people who are completely wrong, I mean, they, they seem to have lost no credibility. Let's do a bit of future gazing. If you saw stuff that was that other people did not see in the 2000s, what are economists and politicians missing now? Rugarum. Well, I, I think uh, we've sort of absorbed the monetary policy of any blame for the previous crisis. And again, we're seeing it as the, the solution to the low activity that we saw over the last so many years. But monetary policy builds up fragilities, uh, especially in the financial sector. We've seen a buildup of debt. Fragilities have built up again. And uh, this is clearly a source of worry. So that's on the immediate. The deeper problems that significant sections of society don't see much of a future for themselves as well for the, as for their children is an important deficiency in industrial countries. The anti-trade moves that we see are part of this narrative. And it does, uh, I think, perhaps even more than financial fragility, cause concerns about the future of the global system. We need to work on this. I, I'm not pessimistic that uh, we don't have answers. I think we do, but we need to work on it. And by monetary policy, you mean interest rates and all the other things done by the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, who've often been more important this decade than the fiscal policy of tax and spend by governments. And Pettifor. I mean, what we've had since the crisis is an over-dependence on monetary policy and a determination by governments not to use, at least by the British government and European governments, not to use fiscal policy to revive the economy. And that very biased approach towards the economy has led to the impoverishment of, of whole swathes of people and to a rise in populism and even fascism. You know, So we are going back to the 1920s, the 1930s, the post-29 crash, where the victims of the crisis carry the burden of the losses. Uh, the victors go on and the 1% and do very well. Inequality is rising dramatically. And we're getting a rise in fascism. And that, for me, is very worrying. Steve, where do we go after Donald Trump? <laughs> I see Donald Trump as a classic American shyster who realises a real problem out there like baldness, for example, and sells you a cure for baldness that involves drinking cold juice and, and in the meantime rips you off and, and makes a fortune out of it. That's, that's what he's really been. So he's actually getting hold of a legitimate grievance that American working yeah. class but, people but have. Just, just take your analysis yeah. at face value. If you're yeah. saying that he's not able to deal with, with the real grievances yeah. people have, Who's going to come along and deal with it then? Nobody. What's that look I, like? What I, what I expect to have happen is what's I, what got us out of the Great Depression was the Second World War. Because in the Second World War, uh, the British So we're going to have a world war? Is that no, not a saying? world war. We're going to be having a climate change crisis. And at that yes. stage, we're on a war footing against the damage we've done to the climate. Nobody's right. going to complain about the level of budget spending you do to pay for it. The deficit that Britain ran in 1940 that particular year was equivalent to 40% of GDP. And nobody stood up in Parliament House yes, and said, it should be 39%, we can't, we can't afford that extra 1%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they would have been saying, we'll be saying, we'll be saying Heil Hitler next month. So the, 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 when you're on a war footing, you yeah. don't even ask how do you mobilise the real resources you need, you simply mobilise them. When we did that, that's what reduced the private debt levels of the, of the Great Depression to trivial levels, which gave us the golden age of capitalism. If we're going to have another golden age, we've got to get rid of that private debt. We'll do it by accident rather than deliberately. 
Tell me, where is the next crash going to come from and when does it happen? Peter, you first. Well, I, I think, you know, the, the central banks around the world has have unleashed, you know, a massive amount of inflation in, with them, all the money they've created and the low interest rates. And so you're going to eventually interest rates are going to have to rise dramatically throughout the world. And that's going to be a big problem. But the, the epicenter is going to be in the United States, because I think the Fed is going to resist the temptation to raise rates. I think the Fed is going to be easing as the ECB is tightening. I think we're going to have a dollar crisis and we're going to have a sovereign debt crisis in the United States. Just to unpack what you're saying, you're saying that the in Europe, interest rates are going to rise, whereas they'll be falling or staying about the same in America, which will put a lot of pressure on American assets. Is that right? Well, long term rates are going to skyrocket. The Fed is going to try to reflate this bubble one more time. Right. We're going into recession again. And the Fed is going to do, make the same mistake or at least try to. But I don't think the world is going to buy it again. I mean, the reason we got away with QE the last time. Quantitative easing, which is pumping money into the, into right. the financial system. The markets perceived that it was temporary. When they realize that it's permanent, that the Federal Reserve is never going to shrink its balance sheet, that it's going to rise in perpetuity, that interest rates could never normalize, the bottom is going to drop out of the dollar and there's going to be a run on the U.S. Treasury market because people all around the world are loaded up on worthless IOUs. And when they figure this out and they look to get out of the dollar, that's when the whole house of cards collapses. So the U- so U.S. government bonds are going to go down. Raghu, what's your prediction for where the next crash is going to come from? Well, I I don't claim to be an economic forecaster, but uh, I do worry about the extent of leverage that has built up. This is borrowing. I do think in in an environment of rising interest rates, we will have places of fragility. However, I will say that uh, usually crises emerge in the most in the oddest places, places you didn't think of looking, because if you did think of looking before, you'd do something about it. And uh, I, I would guess this time around will be no different. Steve, what are they missing? Uh, the countries that are going to have a crisis in the future, the ones that avoided ones back in 2008, and the way they that's did it Russia, was, that's China. No, China in particular, China, Australia, Canada, uh, the, the, and uh, South Korea. And they avoided it by getting their private sectors to borrow money massively. And that gave them credit bubbles, which got them through the crisis. So you're saying China's going to head for a financial... China's already having a credit crunch, but at the same time, this is where I'm going to totally differ with Peter, obviously, uh, the scale of government spending there is so large that that's masking the, the credit crunch they're going through at the same time. The, the Obama stimulus was about 10% of GDP. The New Deal was 5%. I've seen estimates that China's already spending, in terms of its excessive government spending over taxation, 15% of GDP. So that government spending is making up for the credit crunch at the same time. Countries that are not doing it are Australia, South Korea and Canada, and those are the ones I think will have a, have a crunch. On America, my predictions are quite different to Peter's, so I'll state them out. I think we're going to see a, we're seeing a boom right now with the, with the level of deficit spending that Trump is doing. There's going to be a jump in wages because finally there'll be enough labour shortage to mean capitalists put up wages to try to attract workers. That'll give an inflationary boost that the Reserve will then try to cut off by raising interest rates. That will trigger the private sector to start reducing its debt once more, deleveraging, will then go into a slump at that point. Um, And I see them repeating that process. It's exactly the same process Japan has been doing for the last 25 years. And when does all this start to happen? Oh, I'd see, probably, I think, in 2020, and plenty of time to make uh, Trump's second election campaign really interesting. 2020. Okay. And um, I want a prediction and I want a deadline for a prediction, just like Steve's given me. Well, I've, I mean, for me, the, the process has started. It's already starting, and that is as central banks begin to 
wind down their balance sheets and the Fed has been doing this now for nearly a year and the ECB has announced that it's going to be doing that uh, from September onwards. It's going to halve its purchases of assets and it's going to stop purchasing assets by the end of the year. This is already leading to higher bond yields, in other words, to higher interest rates and that's already turning into a threat to the vast amount of debt. For me, the real worry is that we live in a world of asset price inflation And those asset prices are going to do what they did before. They're going to fall in value. And when they do that, the debt that's leveraged against it is going to rise uh, in relative terms. And once again, interest rates are going to be the thing that will puncture that particular bubble. So I see that the thing has already begun. Um, I don't think it's in the future. I think we're living through it. This brings us back to your argument about the dot-com bust in the early 2000s, doesn't it, Anne? Because Mm. just like then, central bankers responded to 2008 by cutting interest rates and encouraging people to borrow. Only this time, the Bank of England and others did so in spades. So what we've effectively done is swap new bubbles for old ones. And you're worried about what happens when these new ones burst. Yeah. I start by calling your Cassandras. How confident would you be that Another Cassandra coming along now would be listened to by other economists, by policymakers, by politicians. I don't feel very confident about that, precisely because there's still groupthink Mm. in academia and uh, amongst economists and including amongst professional economists. And the groupthink is about the fact that the existing architecture is fine and it's not. And until the group begin to think about the architecture and the system and the fact that both need transforming, we're not going to see this uh, fixed. Steve? You you don't get listened to. Uh, It's very, very hard to attract attention in the first place when you're seeing a crisis coming. And you don't, they just don't want to hear what you're saying because... Who's uh, they? The media? Well, the, the media, and politician, media and politicians. To some extent, the media will be interested in somebody saying things aren't as good as you think they are. But you know, these also, you know, the old story from the news, newspaper world, bad news sells. Well, actually, it's not true of finance. Good news sells in finance. And that makes it very hard to come through and say there's something wrong with the financial yeah. system. Yeah. The financial journalists don't want to hear it. Mm. Yeah, and the, the big problem is when you're warning about a crisis, if you actually see the crisis and understand it, you're going to be warning about it years before it happens. Yes, that's and true. so you, you end up getting labeled a broken clock. And so that's what people say about me when they when I when, when I try to talk about having predicted the financial crisis. Yep. They'll just say, well, you well, you're just a broken clock. So you were really right. Yep. Even though they, they don't look down to the specific details of my forecast were extremely accurate. So I wasn't just saying the sky was going to fall. I explained exactly how and why. But still, they, they, they want to pretend that I'm just a stop clock. And so anybody who is out there warning about a problem is never going to be listened to by the powers that be because nobody has a vested interest in, in raining on anybody else's parade. Uh, and the warnings will always fall on deaf ears. Raghuram, let, let me take you to the year 2025. And there's a young economist at the IMF who's about to go and deliver a paper, a rather controversial paper, at a conference of other policymakers and politicians how well would predictions of a crash or of bad things happening, how well do you think that would go down in a few years' time? While I think they will, this economist will be listened to, uh, I'm not sure that the organisation will know how to react and, in fact, they will get the reaction right. I, th- I do think that we have a lot of work to do, both on the financial sector, on monetary policy as well as on the deeper underpinnings of capitalism. 
that we've heard some back and forth on in this debate. But certainly, there's enough for all of us to do. Again, I, I don't think we need to be pessimistic that we can't make progress. Will we get it right and avoid all future crises? Of course not. We will have future crises, and the real job is to try and manage them. A couple of years after another Wall Street collapse, the giant one of 1929, economist John Maynard Keynes remarked as a sound banker, is not one who foresees danger and avoids it, but one who, when he is ruined, is ruined in a conventional way, along with his fellows, so that no one can really blame him. Something very similar happened in 2008. What had been common sense just two or three years ago now looked highly arguable. The odd thing is that the architects of the bubble were still in charge, this time of building our new economy. The ones who before 2008 promised that everything would be just fine and dandy were now telling us how much needed to change. And now Cassandra's would have mainly been left on the sidelines. In politics and economics, being right doesn't guarantee reward. My thanks to Steve Keane, Anne Pettifor, Peter Schiff and Raghuram Rajan. Rajan. 